Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, I sound like you like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. In his brand new book, Leave Only Footprints, Connor Knighton chronicles the year he spent traveling to every national park. It coincided that year with the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service. But it's a personal story that he tells. It's not a travelogue. It's a story of a man dealing with the aftermath of a canceled engagement, fears of his own insecure employment. It's a really beautiful, vulnerable human portrait of a man in flux and a man seeking not just answers, but a deeper meaning in the natural world. I don't mean to put words in his mouth, but I loved the book so much. And um, I get to speak to Connor on this episode of Wheels Off about the making of that book, the years leading up to it, his life now as he copes with the idea of what is next for him. He does have a full-time gig as a correspondent on CBS Sunday Morning, a venerated news program that is well-known for just a high level of quality. Their pieces are less news than they are sort of lifestyle and human interest stories. He's just such an interesting guy. I really like the way he approaches his work, but also in our discussion, you'll hear just the way he approaches his everyday life. He's a sweet, humble, deep dude. And I'm so glad I got to speak to him for Wheels Off, Connor Knighton. Welcome to Wheels Off, Connor Knighton. Thank you for having me. This is so great. I'm uh, I'm really glad to get to talk to you. Um, I love the new book so much. I'm so proud of you for for releasing something beautiful into this world in such a sort of kind of scary and dark time. Um, and I'm so glad to get to talk to you. So my first question is, uh, what creative project are you working on right now and how does it light you up? Uh, well, I've started, and I can't believe I'm in this position, but thinking about what a second book might be. Um, and that's come from the agent and the publisher where they're like, the book's doing reasonably well. And so that's the next question they ask you. And I just kind of thought that, like, I did one cool thing. I went to every national park in the country in a year. That's the story. And now I am retired from writing. <laughs> um, but uh, their point, and it's taken me some uh, some time to to come around to it. It's like, well, no, if people like your writing, they may enjoy your take on on anything. And it's a very different way to begin that creative process because now you get to pick anything. It's not that you're writing about this one thing that happened in your life. You get to to choose what that subject matter would be. So I'm in the very early stages of that. But it's been really fun to think about what I 
might choose to write about when when anything is is possible. Um, although if it's going to be travel themed, well, a lot of that isn't possible right now. So there's a kind of nuts and bolts uh, reality of it all, which is, well, what could I feasibly create now when there's when there's so much of the the world that's off limits? Golly, I mean, I, I wonder because so much of what you've done during your creative life is creating segments for you know television and television news programs. Um, so there's a lot of blank page going on in your world. So, but this is like the biggest kind of blank page, right? So what book are you going to write? You don't have the year of traveling to parks now to draw on that. Is that daunting to you? It is. Although again, very exciting as well, because uh, uh, you, and you don't have to, to be at the place to write about a thing. You could write a, a, a biography of Abraham Lincoln. You're not going to interview him. <laughs> so yeah. you can, uh, you can, do a lot of that from home. That's a lot of what I'm thinking about. But my day-to-day uh, work, which is continuing to be a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning, that continues. And so that's always a really creative, exciting uh, process to craft those segments. But we've had to be more creative in how we make them right now because Sunday Morning's the kind of show that's going to do a piece on the world's largest mailbox in Casey, Indiana. And, and we're not going to those places right now. So it's a lot of this. It's a lot of Zoom and Skype interviews and then trying to find stories that are local and, and figuring out that balance of acknowledging where we are in the world, but also still giving people the hope and the the quirky slice of life that people have come to really enjoy from Sunday morning. And knowing that by Sunday of a week, you've spent Monday through Saturday reading every headline, read everything from toilet paper shortages to, to antibody tests. And so maybe we can give a take about uh, that, that still touches on where we are, but, but gives you a slice that you haven't seen. So it's been fun trying to figure out what those are, but it is definitely a challenge, just a production challenge. All our editors are editing from home. Um, we're using a lot more freelance camera crews in, in different cities because we're not flying anybody right now. I don't think a, a correspondent for our show has gotten on a plane since March. Do you have any segments that you've created that have aired that you've made during the lockdown? You must have. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Um, uh, I did one on the uh, Faroe Islands. So that's a place that I'd gone back in 2017 and had done a story on the first Michelin-starred restaurant in the history of the Faroe Islands. Uh, it's this island nation of of 50,000 people. Um, nothing much grows there. There's no trees. And so this, this chef um, who trained at Noma had figured out uh, that a, a lot of what people looked at of just the grasses and the leaves, he could make this really high-end cuisine from that. So that story aired years ago. Um, but we had all the footage from that. And so this has been the creative piecing together because you don't just want to see Zoom on TV all day long. Mm. And so I went back and drew from that and then added some of that material into a piece on how the Faroe Islands are trying to keep themselves top of mind for tourists, even though no tourists can visit. So they created a program where you can take a virtual tour where you're controlling a Faroese guide with a video game controller. So you are live. And so they're getting instructions in there. Uh, earpiece saying turn left go straight run jump and so it's this fun balance of being helpful and also messing with them because plenty of people just hit the jump button nonstop <laughs> for the couple of minutes that they get at the controls um and so it's it's finding hybrid segments like that where you still have some footage of us out in the world but uh then we're talking about how how folks are reacting to normal times but then we've also weirder are the pieces that we shot pre-covid 
that are now airing because they just – I mean they look like and they were shot in a different time. So we almost have to explain like, hey, this is why I'm sitting real close to this guy <laughs> this is because it was February you know, and things were different then. Um, and so those will continue to trickle out. Sunday morning to show where there's a long lead time on stories whereas like the evening news, they're normally shooting it that day or the day before. We sometimes are, are months ahead of time. Kat, when you, it's funny when you talk about revisiting stories you've done, um, I wonder if you have considered or would you think you'll wind up doing any stories about the national parks and what's happening with them in, in light of everything that's going on? Yeah, and, and that's constantly changing. Um, it was one of the first stories I did in in uh, this time frame where I went out to Joshua Tree and they were closed. And Closing the national parks at the time, I think people have come around to this, but at the time it felt really counterintuitive because what do you want more than anything is to get outside, get into nature when everyone's cooped up inside. And what they were finding is that people still want to hike the popular trails. So even though Joshua Tree has hundreds of thousands of acres, there's a few sections of that park where everyone congregates. Zion National Park in Utah, everyone wants to hike Angel's Landing. And so these pictures were coming out of just just really tightly packed crowds of folks, no distancing. And so the mm. park uh, shut down for that reason, to protect their employees, to protect folks, and then to protect the small gateway towns that are near the park. So Moab, Utah, which is the town that you would access Canyonlands and Arches National Parks from, I think they have a 12-bed hospital. I mean, it's it's barely equipped to deal with just the run-of-the-mill kind of mountain biking injuries that happen in Moab. But should there be cases there, they, they would not be equipped to deal with that. So they were really saying, hey, listen, we are a town that relies enormously on tourist dollars, and yet it's just not the right time. Please stay home. Um, uh. But that was two and a half months ago. Now those, now those parks are open, I believe. Um, and so the summer, uh, we'll, we'll see a change in that. But the first story we did off the bat was going back. And it's weird seeing a park where like, I mean, especially Joshua Tree, which I've been to a number of times, there's just signs saying don't come in. And outside of the government shutdown, I've never seen something like that before. And, and the rangers weren't thrilled about it. I mean, they got into this so they can share this bit of nature uh, with with people. And uh, they would found some creative solutions. They were doing Skype field trips. So I got to watch a ranger taking her iPad around and showing cacti and showing boulders to a classroom that was supposed to come visit. And now uh, she was having to homeschool that way. Oh, it's a little heartbreaking. Just that as a microcosm, watching my own kids try and do school at the kitchen table. Uh, you think about all the things they miss. Um, yeah, so it's funny that the Utah parks, when you and I spoke for um, another thing for the Dallas Museum of Art, and when I asked you about three parks you would recommend that you can get to in the lower 48, those Utah parks, I think, were the first ones that popped into your mind as like a, as great parks to visit, right? I love them, and I, I – think some of that comes from what you grow, grew up around. So I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia, mm -hmm. a very lush, green mountain estate, lots of trees. And so when I first visited Utah, I was 14 years old, and it looked like another planet. I might as well have been on Mars. And so I really responded then and continue to respond now to that southwest rocky desert scenery. When I was on the road during the year that the book documents, the cameraman who I traveled with quite a bit, he grew up in Phoenix, and he thought the Great Smoky Mountains were the coolest thing he'd ever seen. So <laughs> it, I think your point of reference, uh, and this is probably true for a lot of like 
dictates what you find cool and interesting. But those Utah parks really uh, resonated with me. But what's nice is there's not a bad one in the bunch. Glacier in Montana is great. I mean, Yellowstone, Yosemite. In a way, saying Yellowstone's your favorite park is like saying the the Beatles are your favorite <laughs> band. Like, of course, of course, it's great. Um, so I've gravitated to some maybe more off off the beaten track ones um, uh, when I answer that question sometimes. But they're all great. So I really love the funny story that I've heard you tell about being um, in elementary school and writing, you know, a little book that was like a sci-fi story. But I wonder if, and I know that that, that that's a very young you, and I also know that you acknowledge that you stole the entire plot from Space Camp, what was it? It's Space Camp, the movie, which came out in 1986. <laughs> like, I don't, my teacher didn't call me out on it then, but she must have, I mean, that was a big movie. Um, but reading it now, it's just such a blatant ripoff. I mean, I've changed the name. The, the, the title of my book was The Day My Class Blasted Off. Yeah. <laughs> and the names are actual kids I went to elementary school with. But I found that recently in a drawer because uh, I'd been pitching Leave Only Footprints as my first book. I think that's how that's how the publisher yeah. sells it. Technically, it is my second book. <laughs> the first was written for Mrs. Scaff's class at Chamberlain Elementary in Charleston. Um, but yeah, at the end, I, I like that I had the arrogance and, and I, ultimately the foresight as a nine-year-old to be like, I'm working on my next book. Um, so 30 years later, that finally that, came out. That's so great. But so I wonder about it because um, – like I know I I remember the earliest moments where I, I thought I knew what I was going to be doing in those moments of epiphany. Like I wonder at that young of an age, did you see yourself being a creative person? Did you see yourself being specifically maybe a fiction writer? Did you have ideas about like, like what you might want to do that you've wound up doing or that you've thrown to the wayside? Do you remember these epiphany moments? I did a lot of acting uh, at that time. You know, I was a kid who was always in the school play. Uh, and even after college, when I moved to L.A., that was that was what I spent the first year and a half chasing um, were, were those kind of gigs. Uh, but writing was – I think reading is where it came from most. Uh, book it, which I think still exists. But it was this program where if you read enough books, you got a, a Pizza Hut personal pan pizza and <laughs> – um, I, I don't know if, if I got into it for the pizza or not, um, but like I would max out the library card every month. Um, and so, yeah, it was much more fiction writing. Honestly, it's, it's still strange to me to talk to anyone about being an author because that's a very new uh, lane for me to to be in. Although writing is, I think, what's at the core of every TV segment I've ever done. So so it's, it's just a very – it's a adjacent skill set. Um, when you're writing for TV, you're often – picking and choosing from what you shot. You know, you come back with this footage and then you're thinking of the best script that can link these moments together and and you're you're limited by those visuals. Writing a book, you can you can draw from anything. Um but yeah, I think that was always there was never a, a botanist phase for me. There was never a phase where I thought that I was I was going to, you know, be a, a heart surgeon. I think it was always some sort of a, a creative field that I, I knew I'd end up in. It's funny to imagine you as an actor having to perform someone else's words and being dependent on someone else for creating the content. Did that ever rub you the wrong way when you were pursuing acting? Yeah, well, especially when I was pursuing it professionally because those words were often, hey, what's up? And that was my audition for like brown haired guy number three on the OC and not getting it. And that's especially discouraging because you don't know if like, like, what did I do wrong? You know, and then you see who got it. Like, did he say, hey, what's up better than me? Um, so and I had some small successes. I was on like, I actually just uh, 
today got uh, a residual check uh, from the Gilmore Girls, which I was on in like 2004. I had two lines then. And the fact that that continues to pay maybe $50 a year is hilarious to me. Um, but, you know, when I was in uh, junior high and high school and, and college to some extent, those that was the lead in the play. So at least I had more words to work with. Um, but yeah, it was it was never frustrating. It's an exciting challenge. Um, and uh, I dabbled some in in writing scripts uh and and maybe one day that's something i'll get back to but no i i i, I never felt limited at all i've got to say stupid shakespeare's words <laughs> it, was, it was a privilege <laughs> to get to attempt to interpret that and really the only reason i i, I shifted is that i think i'd had enough of those brown-haired guy number three auditions um that i thought well what's going to play more to my strong suit and at that point nonfiction TV or alternative TV, they were calling it, which is everything from hosting a game show to, to being a news anchor um, is as much, it feels like as much of a crapshoot. There's still more people who want to do it than, than can do it. But at least if you can write, if you can think of an interesting idea, there's a slightly smaller folks who can do that. There's a lot of people who can say, Hey, what's up? And so uh, I, I thought I might do better in that world. So I, I started at Current TV, which is a cable channel that doesn't uh, exist anymore. But that was much more of like a news comedy show that I did. So that was part acting in the way that The Daily Show or Last Week Tonight, you know, that's that's a, there's a performance on those types of shows. And so that's that's the show that we were a- attempting to make back then. God, well, that was one of the things that really blew me away about Leave Only Footprints is I didn't expect it to be so funny. And it's really I had so many laugh out loud moments reading your book. Um, it's it was really great. I mean, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is it's so cool that you've been able to um, move into this. You've created a space for yourself where you create your own content. You get to be on camera as well. And you get to use just a lot of different skill sets, right? You know, writer, writing, presenting, the comedy that you honed on Al Gore's network. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's nothing as funny as Al Gore's <laughs> network. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it's it's been fun to to pick and choose, and there's. there's Parts where you have to dial those levels up and down um, d- depending on, on the outlet uh, that I found myself on. But, yeah, it's been, it's been fun to combine those. So um, especially because right now the book is like the newest thing. And I know you're probably having to do a lot or getting – I'm not having to do – getting to do a lot to promote the book and a lot of interviews about it. Um, I imagine having read the book that you made a lot of – you made a number of choices that involved you – Letting yourself be vulnerable as the author of the book, letting yourself appear in the book, talking about your own personal experience, your feelings. And I um, I just wonder, like, how hard of a decision was that? And then in doing so, um, and in general in your career, do you, do you have a lot of self-doubt, internally generated obstacles? Like, do you – you seem like a pretty confident guy. But having read your book, I know that, you know, there's a lot of depth there and there's uh, – you know, that you struggle like we all do. I wonder how you deal with that. Um, the, you can be confident and realistic at the same time. And I think that's the scary part of working in any creative field is that unless you're just deluding yourself with some sort of supreme overconfidence, you have to know that it could all go away. And so the moment right before this, this, the journey that inspired the book, 
I was unemployed. I was unengaged. Um, at the, the t- you know, I, I, for this brief moment, thought that I knew what my future held. I, I had been engaged, and then all of a sudden I, I found out that I, I was not anymore, and I, I took that uh, pretty hardly at the time. Um, and I think outside of the sadness of that relationship going away, this future went away. And it's the first time in a long time, maybe ever, that I, I knew what my life would look like or the most important part, I thought – 40 years down the line. And so when that went away, I was really in this reset mode. So I, I didn't have the kind of self-doubt where I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm no good. I'm unlovable. I'm not, uh, I'm not a, uh, a good writer or a good uh, TV personality. But I just was also real enough, realistic enough to think that like I may never do that again. And so this, this pitch that I would spend this year going to see all the national parks was both a thing I think I needed to do personally and also kind of a Hail Mary uh, career uh, pass, I guess, to see like, would, would they say yes to this? Because, um, and they ultimately did, but yeah, the the obstacle that I struggle the most with from a writing standpoint is procrastination. And I, I think everybody deals with that. Some, I think with writing in particular, it's very easy to procrastinate and think you're working. Like when your job is to like build a house and then you just go watch Netflix all day, you know you're not building the house. But when your job is to like write this book, you can pretty easily just just go down some Google rabbit hole of of learning about fascinating tree facts. And some of that is useful. Probably the first five percent of that day spent searching did make it into the book and the other 95 percent. And I, I would know it while I was doing it. I'm like, you're just doing this to to avoid <laughs> fixing that problem in chapter seven. You know, you have to to fix. So it was really trying to set a schedule. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, and also worrying how people will perceive something um, because it's it, I, I'd been so used to with TV being able to tweak something down until the last possible minute with a book. The way the the publishing world works is you you lock that months in advance, and those were really scary months in between where I, I had to try not to go back and look at it again because you want to tweak it and you want to fix something. And with TV, you can do that until about ten minutes before it airs. Um, and with with this, you couldn't. And I honestly kind of don't understand why you can't. It seems like they were like printing it on like a Gutenberg press or something. Like you'd think that we would have evolved enough where you could like kind of click go at the Kinkos or wherever this thing is made like a, a week ahead of time, but they. They, they assured me that it had to be finished six months ahead of time. And so those are sc- six scary months for a constant tweaker and perfectionist to not want to go back and, and blow things up. So, God, that's funny. That's in music. That's there, there's a four month lead time for an album and you have to lock it, uh, master it and then wait around for four months while nobody gets to hear your record. Yeah, that's a that's a really it's a good that's a good opportunity to convince yourself that this thing that you were convinced was brilliant is no long, is now a piece oh, of crap. Oh, it's brutal. It's brutal. <laughs> Although, do you find yourself – like this will be forever locked for me. I, I will no longer tweak this. But with songs, at least you can you can adapt on the stage. Like are there any now that you perform differently or you've added different verses to that, that were, are not on the album versions? It's funny. The, the most recent solo record I put out, The Messenger, had a song on it where – and it's and I really it's total disaster. It was the the single off the album, and so I play it the most off of the album. And there was a lyric on there where I I probably sang it I don't know for real while we were cutting it, and we were keeping every vocal, so the vocal wasn't going to change. Sorry, I know now you're interviewing me. No, I'm um, fascinated. <laughs> there was one lyric that every time I sang it, I wanted the lyric to be. Um, Let's see. If you choose to stay by my side, you've got to get that I've got flaws. You are free to leave any time. Um, 
God, you you afraid? Um, the, the I sang it differently um, when I when I recorded it. It was the only time I sang it um, with this one lyric that was just a lot less generous sounding. It was um, oh yeah okay uh, oh so what I sang was instead of you are free to leave any time, which is really something that sounds like a reasonable thing someone might say. Yeah. What I what I sang was feel free to leave any time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very different vibe, yeah. Yeah, and so that was the take that the drums and bass sounded great on. That was the take that everybody sounded great on. That's the take that wound up being on the record and going out. And now that's what people listen to when they hear it. And it just seems like that's not the guy I wanted to be singing the third verse, you know? (laughs) So I sing it. When I perform it live now, I say, I sing, feel free to leave any time. No, you are free to leave any time. Not feel free to leave any time. (laughs) Although do you have fans then who are like, oh, he screwed it up live. You know, it's (laughs) it's supposed to be this. Hopefully this will now put the the feel free, you are free debate to rest. But but that's interesting. So you haven't like, that's almost an error that happened as it was being recorded, not some massive revisioning of, of, of your, your thought process has changed down the line. Well, I've got a few songs from early on where they're like, um, where there's violence against women, you know, mm. like it's a murder ballad and the guy's about to murder his wife and her lover because they're cheating on, you know, where now I just, it doesn't, I don't like singing about murder. I, mm. uh, or if there's this, there's some, like he dug, he dug a grave for her. Like just some lyrics that at the time felt like, oh, this is fine. This is a trope. Yeah. And now I'm like, um, now I'm really putting myself in the narrator's head, and he's killing a woman. This doesn't feel yeah. good. Sure. So I, I tend to not sing those songs anymore. Yeah. Um. So okay, hold on. So you mentioned. I just want to before we move over this uh, procrastination, and um, and boy, I can relate to this, especially when it comes to my own dreams of writing. And you said that for you, the way that you move past that is by creating a schedule. Can you just tell me a little bit, like, how specifically do you schedule it and how do you hold your feet to the fire to follow that schedule? So it's it's picking something, and I, I'm not really qualified to give advice on this because I'm still working through it, but what I found helps is picking a much more achievable goal because I'd start being like, okay, I need to do this chapter today. And and. Even if I'm I'm just stream of consciousness typing, that that's more than you can get done in a day. And so it would be much more uh, like I need to make these five paragraphs really work or I, I would just keep a running list of what's going to happen. But also feeling – giving myself permission to bail when it wasn't working. So at some point you're like if I read about one more glacier, I'm going to go crazy. So having that – having a list to the side of like, well, I also need to work on that story about – Teddy Roosevelt and his wife and mother, then I can, I can procrastinate that way as long as I'm doing my tasks. Um, uh, but it's, it's, I don't know, the, the challenge is to know when it's done. And at least with TV, there's a drop dead date. There is, we, we are a show that airs on Sundays. And so if you don't have it done Saturday night, it is not getting on TV. With the book, there's some flexibility. I mean, there are deadlines, but there's no set length. So you can, you can add and subtract. And that's really up to you. It's like a song, you know, like a, a three and a half people make three and a half minute songs. They make six minute songs. And it's kind of up to you to decide how long that song needs to be. And so, uh, that was the other challenge with the book. But the, yeah, the, the scheduling was just chunking those tasks into something more achievable and realizing when I was slipping from that, when I was, when I was too, when I was researching just for the sake of researching, I think. Um, 
or, or, or revising just for the sake of revising and not actually getting anything done. But I still struggle with it. I'm, I'm, I'm working on that every day. Well, it's funny. I, you, you, you pointed to a list that you kept, and I'm just wondering, logistically, did, did you have like note cards? Uh, you know, did, was this all on a computer desktop? How do you, yeah. how do you like to work? Because you're um, such a nomad. Right. Yeah. So at, uh, at some point, I visited uh, the uh, John Muir Historic Site, which is the home that he lived in in Martinez, California, uh, after he had done most of his wandering, but when he did the bulk of his writing. And in that home, there's uh, what he used to call his scribble den. And it was cool to see and also just anxiety inducing to see because he was such like a messy pack rat where there's just there's, they have recreated it and what I I don't really know how they know this maybe there's a photo of it at one point but what they believe it looked like where it's just paper strewn all over the place and somehow that system made sense to him and he was able to create great work uh, I could not work that way and so mine is <laughs> mine is exclusively on and also technology's changed clearly so yeah. mine's all on a computer I use a software called Scrivener which is I think yeah. mostly for for novel writers I think is sort of how it's pitched um but I find that uh, easy to it's just a way of organizing documents and, and little chunks of things so I, I kept it all on that um, at some point the publishing world demands Microsoft Word track changes um, which I don't love but at, it, there was a point where the book kind of moved all into that but everything else yeah it was just a series of notes that that lived uh, within the framework of that program which I think works I don't know God and 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 when we spoke before, you gave a piece of advice that I I want to make sure that I um, elicit from you once again here, which was that if you could go back to the beginning of this project, you would have told yourself to take more notes. Oh, I mean, if I could go back to to second grade, I would have told myself that because just I want the diaries from then. Um, I uh, there's a lot of like if I had a time machine, I would go back and and tell myself. Uh, I had this a Judy Bloom diary that I kept. I was a big fan of Judy Bloom because I like super fudge and tales of a fourth grade nothing. But Judy Bloom, I think the bulk of her career was writing for a mostly female audience. Um, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret, whatever. So I had this fill in the blank diary that I would – it was like a prompt kind of diary. And it would say, my crush is great. He – and then I would <laughs> scratch it out and write she. And like – and whatever, and I fill out the whole thing, and then years later, when like fifth or sixth grade rolled around, I look back at it, and I'm like, oh, you idiot, this is a diary for a girl. Like, and you just, like, oh, and I was so mortified that I didn't know that, and also I was mortified by like a lot of those old crushes. I didn't like Mary Brent anymore, now I like Jennifer, and so I destroyed that diary. I, I erased so much of it um, and tore out pages, and like, I would love to have those notes now. Um, I, I have learned to not uh, delete anything anymore, but the act of, of keeping it i would have just taken pictures of park signs pictures in the visitor center museum things that seem mundane and that you honestly feel a little dorky taking a picture of that when the grand canyon's outside who takes a picture of the sign but to to go back and find that information is is very challenging after the fact so i wish i would have just documented a lot of that and, and realizing in the writing process that it's the fun small details of What's on the elevator at the Hampton Inn in Alamosa, Colorado? The stupid picture of crayfish that say cray cray on it um, when it is <laughs> far from an ocean and has nothing to do with crayfish. Like those, those are moments that are are helpful to have. And so it, it's it's recording what's the seemingly mundane. Those details end up uh, 
really helping a lot in setting a scene. So I wish I would have done more of that. And I try and do more of that now. I'm just remember th actually this time in particular, I want to record a video of the little dance I do when my takeout arrives and the, the, <laughs> the cleaning, like weird stuff that I do where I'm like, okay, I've got to like take the box off and put this and then wash my hands and then do this. Like there will be a time in my life when this all seems so foreign to me. And I'll want to remember like, Hey kids, Hey grandkids. This is the moment when like your grandfather, <laughs> this is how he dealt with his DoorDash delivery <laughs> of, of, you know, picking these little things out and, and washing my mask. So uh, it's yeah, constantly recording that stuff that seems so silly at the time. Um, so that might be part of the answer to this, but maybe the question itself is more philosophical. My usual wrap-up question, which is if you could talk to a 21-year-old version of Connor Knighton, but working in today's world with today's technology, um, what advice do you think you might give yourself? I think it's get good at a lot more than more than the aspect that you want to pursue. I think the era of a teleprompter reading news anchor is over. There are people like that who are still on TV, but nobody like that is getting hired anymore. Um, you have to know how to shoot. You have to know how to edit. Even if ultimately you do find yourself in that teleprompter reading role, you will be better off for having those skills. And I, I don't think just why would you hire somebody who doesn't have those skills anymore? So I was kind of – I'm on this cusp of folks who didn't necessarily have to know that, so I learned it a little later. But it's – but I see my older colleagues not just, – just being unfamiliar with, with how to even cut together clips on, on their computer. Um, and this may not even be advice you have to give a 21-year-old. Maybe that is just so ingrained that they know that already. But I, I think if you want to to be – in any aspect of, of TV news, it's helpful to know all of the aspects just so you have the vocabulary to speak with your editor and be like, hey, can you make this this many frames earlier or whatever? Um, it's helpful. So uh, – and that's not always fun um, if that's not <laughs> – if, if that's – I mean it, it can be. But if like if, you, if you're not good at it, it it's, it's hard work. But that's what I would advise is to, is to explore more than – explore the adjacent aspects uh, and it's probably the same for – I mean it's helpful to have a, a bit of a legal background if you're a musician just because you're going to have to do a contract one day. And so understand – instead of poo-pooing that and saying, well, that's not what I do. I'm creative. Taking a, a week or whatever to learn a little bit uh, I found helps a lot. It's almost like don't think that anything is beneath you. Yeah, I certainly don't think that. Um, and – just those adjacent aspects that you don't think you're going to be using in your career. You probably will at some point, and it helps to know. Um, and so that's that's what I found uh, to be the most useful is to have a, a bit of a familiarity with frame rates or codecs or things that like far better uh, videographers actually deal with on our show. But it's nice that I know just a little bit. And, and honestly, now has proved it. Like as we're shooting from home, I'm setting up three camera shoots at an Airbnb and and I'm equipped to do that because I took some time years ago to learn a bit of how that works, even though I knew that that wasn't the the aspect of the industry that I would probably be succeeding in. It helps to know a little bit. So. I love that. Well, in a way, that's such a perfect uh, bit of advice for you to give because one of the things I admire so much about you is that you've done so many different things and you've approached the idea of creativity from so many different angles. And it's it's really impressive. And I'm, I feel so lucky that I got to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining me, Connor. No, well, thank you. for This so fun. Thank you for having me. Hopefully we get to hang out in person someday soon when that's God. allowed again. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Right. Take care, my friend. Thank you. Thank you.
All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.